Uh, look, tonight, as I said, we are finishing off our message called Holy Spirit. And so uh, if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. And look, really the whole heart behind this series is we are aware of the fact that we want to be a people who are balancing out the, the truth and the authority of Scripture with the power and the leading of the Spirit in our lives. That we know Jesus was calling for disciples who, disciples who would worship him in both spirit and truth, and that is still the calling he has on our lives today. Uh, and so what we've seen so far in this series is, firstly, we looked at a message called Receive, as, as we talked about what it meant to receive the Spirit, that each and every one of us as believers, we've been given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it is a gift, and we are to walk out that truth. Uh, in the second week, we looked at the fact that we are to follow the Spirit, uh, that the Holy Spirit actually comes alongside us and He guides us and He shows us the ways to go. And sometimes that's explicit, sometimes that's implicit, but we're to follow those leadings regardless. And then last week, Sandy showed us that we are also to be transformed by the Spirit. That's the role of the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and to conform us more and more and more into the image of Christ. And look, tonight, tonight's going to be a bit of a doozy because I've got some anointing oil with me, and we're going to finish this series by talking about the Spirit's role in miracles and healing. That every time in the book of Acts, the, the Holy Spirit shows up, two things happen. Firstly, the gospel is preached, and secondly, the miraculous starts to take place. That there are just times in the Bible where the impossible collides with the undeniable, and we call those moments miracles, and they are the work of the Spirit. And so tonight we're going to talk about what miracles are, what they do, why they occur, and whether or not God still does them today. And just to spoil that one from the get-go, yes, we still believe God is in the business of, of healing the sick, of opening the eyes of the blind, of raising the dead, that, that God never stopped doing that and He's still doing it today. And, and through the work of the Spirit, we're actually going to finish tonight in a place of, of prayer and healing so that some of us may leave this room different to how we actually came in tonight. So does that sound good, Kemba? Awesome, awesome. Well, we've got a fair bit of ground to cover before we get there, so let's jump into it. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. All right, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've actually seen Peter in the book of Acts. We've been following a couple other bits and pieces in the early church. So let's just do a quick recap. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, one of the fishermen that Jesus said, come and follow me, and, and Peter just drops his nets and he follows after Jesus. Uh, he's also one of what are known as the inner circle of Jesus. Uh, three disciples, disciples, Peter, James, and John, that they just got a front row to all of the most amazing and incredible moments of Jesus' ministry. Uh, so they're the ones that are there for the transfiguration. Uh, they're there for the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. They're there at the Garden of Gethsemane. They just get to ha have this like personal and intimate relationship with Jesus. And look, a, a lot of uh, commentators will say it's because, you know, Jesus is trying to intentionally disciple these three and he's, he wants a one-on-one -on -one relationship with them. And I, I'm sure that's all true, but I've also been a youth pastor for a couple of years now. And I reckon Peter, James, and John, they're the three that if Jesus leaves them by themselves, they're going to get themselves into some mess. So every time Jesus has to leave the disciples, he's like, nah, Peter, James, and John, you guys are with me. I cannot leave you guys by yourselves. But look, Peter's just had this amazing journey, right? That Jesus has taken him from a no-name fisherman all the way through to the Pope. Uh, and on that journey, he's had these really high moments, these awesome moments where he gets everything right and he says all the right things. 
And then more often than not, he follows them up by just like the biggest mistakes. And more often than not, those things happen in pretty much the exact same chapter in the Bible. Uh, there's this one time where, where Jesus is asking the disciples like, who do you guys say I am? And, and Peter steps up and he talks first and he talks the loudest and he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and Jesus turns to him and says, wow, Peter, that wasn't given to you from man, that was from God. And he changes his name to Rocky and he says, on this rock I will build my church and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and Peter's just like, awesome, I am the rock, this is amazing. And then I kid you not, the very next verse, Peter tells Jesus off for saying he's going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, so just process the counseling Peter would have to go through for that one. But look, since the, the resurrection, God has just been moving through Peter in this amazing way. Uh, he, he used Peter to preach the very first Christian sermon at the day of Pentecost. Uh, you know, somehow Peter's ended up as the person in charge of the whole early church that God is just doing incredible things through. But really interestingly for us, uh, at this point in the story, Peter has hardly left the confines of Jerusalem at all. In fact, if you jump back a page or two to Acts chapter 1, uh, what we're told is, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So in other words, this persecution happens and, and the church just scatters out to the ends of the earth and they're preaching the gospel as they go, but, but Peter stays at home. And then, and then later there's this revival going on in Samaria and what we're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 14 is when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. In other words, Peter and John, they're in Jerusalem. They hear this, um, the, the, this amazing moment of move of God is happening in Samaria. And so they go out, they check that everything's up above board, that everything's kosher, and then they come back to Jerusalem. But what we're told now in this verse is that Peter is going here and there among them all that he's actually left the confines of Jerusalem and he's moving from town to town and city to city. He's, he's going to people that have already heard the gospel and he's just reinforcing the words they've been taught. He's uh, perhaps sharing the gospel with people that, that haven't had the opportunity to hear it. Uh, I imagine he's helping the early Christian communities. He's resourcing them. He's equipping them. He's training up leaders that he's doing all the work that God has called him to do. And, and look, can I just say, it is far easier to see God moving in your life if you're already on the move. That it's easier for God to work in us, to direct us to do these mighty things through us if we're already doing all that he has told us to do. I mean, have you ever tried teaching a kid how to ride a bike? See, once you got over the whole balancing and, and pedaling thing, the next thing you need to do is teach them how to steer, right? Right? And if they're stationary and you say, okay, I need you to turn to your left, what they'll do is they'll, they'll turn the wheel without moving and then they'll pedal and they'll fall over. And it's okay, you can laugh that I've got my blue card, it's, it's all above board. Uh, but, but what would they actually need to do is in order for the bike to be directed, in order for the bike to be led by the master, that bike actually needs to be in motion first. That it's easier to direct a moving object than it is a stationary. And in a lot of ways, the same is actually true for our relationship with God. Because if you want God to be directing you, if you want God to be using you and doing these amazing things through you, then maybe you need to start by moving first. 
by, by taking those steps in the direction he has called you to do, by, by running the race he has set before you. And as you do that, then you let him lead you in the direction he wants to go. But, but see, what, what I think we have a tendency to do as Christians is we sort of sit back in our heels and we say, okay, God, I'm here. You've got my number. You, you know when to call me. And if you need me, just let me know and I'll do it. And we just sit around wondering why God never directs us. But what you will always find is someone already engaged in the ministry God has called them to. They will always find more opportunities to be sharing the gospel. They will always have more opportunities to be praying for others or caring for the least of these or, or just seeing God move in their lives. And look, the reason I bring it up tonight right at the start of this message as we talk about miracles is because that is especially important when it comes to miracles. Because you see, what can happen is I can start to talk about healing and, and amazing moves of the Spirit and all the things we want to see in our lives as Christians. But if we're not already out and about doing the things God has called us to, if we're just sitting back in our faith, then we can sometimes get a little bit disappointed that God isn't doing all those amazing things. And look, I'm not saying God can't work through us if we're not doing X, Y, and Z, of course not. God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. And I'm not saying if you haven't seen God move in your life and you haven't seen the miraculous that you're somehow doing something wrong, but can I just say in the book of Acts, there are 21 miracles that are explicitly listed out. And do you know how many of them happen within the comfort and the confines of the four walls of the church? One. And that's only because someone falls asleep during Paul's sermon and he falls out a window and dies, and so I think Paul just feels bad for him. Uh, but look, seriously, if you actually want to see God moving in your life and, and, you're, and you're not already doing the things he has called you to, then, then maybe that's actually the place we need to start. Uh, all right, so, so Peter's on the move. He, he's, he's doing what God has called him to. He's, uh, he's out and about. He's at this place called Lydda, which is around 40 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. Uh, in, in fact, if anyone's been to Israel, you've probably been to Lydda. It's where the airport is now. So the airport lands pretty much spot on where, where Lydda is in, in the Bible. Uh, and while he's out there, he's actually going to find two opportunities where he gets to see God moving in this amazing way. All right, verse 33. And there he found a man, a man named Ananias, who had been bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And all the mothers said, Amen. And, and immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, they saw him, and they turned to the Lord. All right, let's do it. Let's, let's talk about miracles. Uh, so the, the first thing I want to get across tonight, and, and this is really the, the, the most important takeaway from this message, is that before miracles are anything else, miracles are signs. That throughout both the Old and the New Testament, the, the word or phrase used to describe miracles, to describe those situations where the impossible meets the undeniable, they are called signs and wonders. And, and look, I, I think we all know what signs are, right? Like, like literally, just think road sign. It's the right sort of image to have in your head. It's the right sort of metaphor. Uh, a sign is simply something that points to something else. A sign is something that will lead you to something else. Like, I'm, imagine I'm driving to the giant pineapple, right? Which is like sunny coast, right? So I'm, I'm driving on the sunny coast highway, and I'm excited. I've got my uh, pineapple t-shirt on. I've got my I love pineapples hat on. I am ready for this. It's going to be amazing. And I'm driving on the highway, and I see a sign that says, giant pineapple, five kilometers to the left. 
And I'm so excited and I pull my car over at the sign and I start taking photos with the sign and I'm posing in front of the sign and I start posting these photos on social media saying, look, I knew today was going to be awesome, but my expectations are blown away. It was better than I could have imagined. It was more awesome than I could have imagined. It was amazing. And then I leave the sign, I get in my car and I drive home. If that is what happened, what you would do is you'd come to me and you'd say, Liam, you missed the point. Because the point wasn't the sign. The sign wasn't what was important. What was important is what the sign was actually pointing to. And see, church, I just want to make sure that we're not getting so fixated on the sign that we lose sight of what the sign is actually pointing to. And so, look, I'll be honest, I love the miraculous. I love stories when people get healed, when God moves in these amazing ways and there's just no way to argue against it. And I think we should get excited about those things. I think we should actually be more expectant to see God do those things in our lives and in our church. But what the sign points to is far more important. And so look, we're going to walk through two miracles now, the two miracles that Peter's about to experience. And I'll be honest from the get-go, both these miracles, completely different. Circumstances are different. Peter says different words. His actions are different. Uh, in, in one, he actually gets down, he kneels and he prays. In the other, he just declares it and it happens that they're just two completely different events. And I think that's good because that means there's no formula. I'm not going to walk through a formula of how to see miracles in your life. But what I want to do is show you what both of these miracles are pointing to. And I think there are three different things that we can actually see from these miracles. So the first thing we see about these miracles is that miracles point upwards. That first and foremost, miracles should always draw our attention and our focus and place it firmly on God. And look, that first miracle, it makes it really easy for us. I mean, who does this story remind you of? Can you think of another time in the Bible where someone heals a man who's sitting on a mat and the man is paralyzed and he's been paralyzed for a long time? Yep, Jesus, for once, the answer in church is Jesus. Uh, See... Everything from the supernatural nature of the miracle itself to the words Peter actually says to the man's immediate response, all of it is an almost exact replica of two different miracles that happen in Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, One is the healing of the man by the pool at Bethesda, uh, where there's this guy who's been sitting there for 35 years and uh, Jesus turns to him and he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And then in Luke chapter 5, there's the story of the four friends who are so desperate to get to Jesus that they break the roof and they, they come on in and they lower their friend down on the mat. And again, Jesus turns to the guy on the mat and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat and go home. That you cannot help look at what Peter is doing here and seeing the reflection of Christ in it. And see, every miracle, whether or not it's something Jesus actually did during his earthly ministry, every miracle should point us towards God. It should reveal things about his character. It should reveal things about his heart and his nature and the way he does things in this world. I mean, when when Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you, what he is doing in that moment is he is demonstrating the power and the strength of God. That you're supposed to look at this moment and see Jesus and and, and the the power of God. There is authority in it, the authority over sickness, authority over nature, authority even over death itself. That we serve a God who tells mountains to move and seas to split, and it actually happens. 
We also learn that, that God hates the darkness. That God did not create a world of blindness, with lepers, with storms, with death. All those things, they, they come in with the introduction of sin. That pain and death and paralytics and depression and anxiety and sickness and cancer, they are not natural to this world. And what the miraculous reveals is that God wants to restore those things to their proper order just as much as we do. That God hates the darkness, he hates the broken things of this world in the same way we do. We learn God is a God of grace and love. That God is a good, good heavenly father who loves us and he cares for us and he actually wants us to be well. In fact, every single miracle the apostles perform in the book of Acts, it is an act of alleviating someone's suffering or their pain or their hardships. They cast out demons, they restore lepers, they open the eyes of the blind and they heal the sick. And what that shows us is God actually cares about the things we care about. He weeps when we weep. His heart breaks for the broken things of this world. That that God is not just sitting in heaven watching all all the broken and stuffed up things of this life and going, eh, it is what it is. No, his heart breaks when the person you love goes through cancer. His heart breaks when you are up all night with that pain that just won't go away. His heart breaks when you're stressed about your exams or you're afraid of the future that God sits in heaven and his heart breaks for us. And look, I don't know who needs to hear this tonight, but whatever it is you are walking through tonight, whether it is something like depression or anxiety or physical pain or or the death or the sickness of a loved one, what these miracles reveal to us is God actually cares. He's not angry at you. He's not punishing you. You haven't done something wrong to deserve that in your life. He cares about you. And he doesn't just care about you in the general sense. Like I could say, I care about all of you. He cares about you. His heart breaks when you have to walk through pain. His heart breaks when you suffer. His heart breaks when you go through things that cause you worry or anxiety or stress. And God wants you to be healed. He he cares so much that he died for you. That Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds, we are healed. And look, church, for, for sure, for sure, that, that means healing from our sin nature and forgiveness for our sin, but it, but it also means physical healing as well. That God cares uh, so much that, that sometimes he reaches down from heaven and he restores the broken things in our lives. Church, that is what we learn about God through this miracle. That God is a good God, he loves us and he cares for us, that miracles point upwards towards his nature. And so verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, which if you're looking for a, a good girl name for a baby, there you go, Dorcas. Uh, it's, it's biblical, it's beautiful, it's pretty. Uh, in Greek, it actually means gazelle. Uh, and, and I promise you, uh, guys, if you name your daughter Dorcas, she will not date until she's 30. So it's, it's a win-win. <laughs> but no, Dorcas, Dorcas was full of good works. Uh, Verse 36, an act of charity. And in those days she became ill and she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. 
All right, so, so we've got this situation where in the next town over, it's about 10 k's away from, jo- uh, from Lydda, there's this town called Joppa, and, and, and Dorcas gets sick and, die, but, and dies, but they, they hear Peter's next door, so they run and go and get him. Uh, verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, and they urged him, please come to us without delay. So there's, there's desperation in that plea. And Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they they took him to the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing their tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. So Dorcas is known in this community, even among the non-Christians. And verse 40, but Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. So even Peter can't call her Dorcas. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And, and again, we read through the story, and it is just a blow-by-blow blow repeat of one of Jesus' miracles. Uh, that, that in the book of Mark, we're told of this, uh, this accounting of um, a man named Jairus, whose, whose daughter gets ill, and, and he sends for Peter, and, and the exact same thing, oh, sorry, he sends for Jesus, and the exact same thing happens. And the parallel, parallels in these stories are just so striking that you cannot avoid them. All right, so in the one account, Jairus comes to Jesus, and he's just like these men. He is desperate, he is urgent, he wants Jesus to come straight away. And then Jesus, just like Peter does, he gets to the building and he's met by the sound of people weeping and crying and wailing. And then Jesus, again, just like Peter does, he tells everyone to get out, to, to leave the room and give him some space by himself. And then and this last one, I just love this last one. Jesus in Aramaic, we're told, in the book of Mark, turns to the girl who has died and says, Talitha kumi, which means little girl arise. And Peter turns to Dorcas, who we're told in, in Aramaic, her name is Tabitha. And he would have said, Tabitha kumi. That Jesus says, Talitha kumi, and Peter says, Tabitha kumi, that there is one letter difference between what Jesus is doing and what Peter repeats. That Peter is so in line with God's will and the leading of the Spirit. That's like you can't tell where where Peter ends and where Jesus begins. And so verse 41, and he gave her his hand and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. All right, so so firstly, miracles pointed upwards, and secondly, miracles point inwards. They point to our own need for salvation. See, church, do you know what happens when unbelievers see the miraculous? When people who don't believe the things we believe or think the things we think or do the things we do, when they see God undeniably doing something that should be impossible. They go, well, I want some of that. That people should see someone being healed of depression or cancer or illness and go, look, I am struggling with those exact same ailments. How can I be healed like that? That someone, that we should see someone being freed from the chains of addiction and go, look, I have those chains around me as well. How can I be set free? That what should happen is the miraculous should bring to the forefront of people's mind their need for restoration their need for their brokenness to be made whole, their need for salvation. The church, ultimately, miracles can be the sign 
that lead people to the salvation that Jesus can bring to our souls. And, and that's what, what happens here, right? In both of these stories, that the fruit that comes out of it is that the story becomes known throughout all the surrounding region and people, as a result, believed in the Lord. And look, if I'm honest, I think this is why Peter tells the paralytic man to pick up his mat. And it's the same reason that Jesus tells those, those uh, two men who he heals to do the exact same thing. Because if you stop and think about it, it makes no sense for any of those men to pick up their mat. I mean, this man, he's been paralyzed and lying in the same mat for the last eight years. And some of you, you don't wash your yoga mat for two weeks of Pilates and those things smell, so just extend that one out. Everything this man is doing every day, it is happening on that mat. Like, do I, do I need to go into more detail there? That the mat would have been gross, it would have had a smell to it, it probably had some mold growing on the side, that there'd be stains on it that no one wants to look at and no one wants to talk about. And yet Peter here in the story and Jesus twice in the Gospels, they tell a man sitting on that sort of mat to get up, to roll up their mat and take it with them. But see, what happens is if you see a healed man walking around with a dirty, stinky mat that belongs to a paralytic, then people start to notice. That they start to say things like, hey, wasn't that the guy who used to sit at the corner? Hey, wasn't that man paralyzed last week? In fact, even if you knew nothing about this man at all, even if you didn't know his story, if you see a healed man walking around with the dirty, disgusting mat, you know something incredible has happened to result in that situation. And look, can I, can I just say, regardless of what you've been saved from, regardless of how gross your mat was or how much it smelled, you, you actually, you're supposed to carry that thing around you. Because what your mat does, what your past does, what your addiction does that God has rescued you from, what, what your sin in your past does, when, when you walk around with that thing, it preaches the glory and the mercy of God to the world. In fact, the grosser your mat is, the greater God's glory. That church, you should not hide your past as a believer. That, that your story is the one thing the world can never argue against. It can never say it didn't happen. It can never disagree with that because it is your story. And so you walk around and you show people your mat and you say, look what my God has rescued me from. And what happens is people look at the map and they see the miracle and it proclaims the gospel to a broken world. And that's exactly what happens here. They were told all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, in other words, not just the city itself, not just Lydda, not just the, the small group that was praying for a healing, not just the community around them, the whole city and the whole of Sharon, the entire region surrounding it, they see the man walking around with this mat and they turn to the Lord. And the same is true for Dorcas. Dorcas gets healed and they're so excited about this miracle that what they do is they call in all the saints and all the widows and they just show everybody. And again, all throughout Joppa, many believed in the Lord. Can I just say that is the greatest miracle of all? Not that the paralyzed man was healed. Not that a dead woman was raised to life. That thousands upon thousands of people came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, if even only if one person, if one person had been saved from this miracle, that would easily outweigh both of them. That church, ultimately, salvation is the greatest miracle. 
that a broken and sinful people like us, dead in our trespasses, unable to come to God in and of ourselves, that we would be reconciled unto a holy and perfect and awesome God, it is impossible. And yet because of the work on the cross, it is undeniable. That Jesus came and he lived a perfect human life. He died a sinner's death on the cross. And then three days later, he rose from the tomb so that whomsoever would believe in him shall not die, but have eternal life. And church, that is a miracle. That is amazing. And every other miracle you experience, every other miracle you see, it should point towards that amazing truth. It should point towards the gospel. And then finally, the miracle points onwards. The miracles point upwards, they point to God, they point inwards, they point to our need for salvation, and they point onwards and they point to heaven. That every miracle, it points to Christ, Christ's future restoration of all things. See, the reason that Jesus and the apostles, they, they opened the eyes of the blind, it, it wasn't just for this life. It was a foretaste of what was to come that ultimately all of our spiritual eyes have been shut and though now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face clearly. That the reason Jesus calms the storms of this life is because ultimately he's gonna calm the greatest storm of them all. The reason Jesus healed the sick and cleansed the leper and raised the dead back to life is because ultimately all things are going to be restored. And each and every one of us, we will stand and be raised in new heavenly bodies and we will stand with the resurrected Christ forever. That every healing in the Bible, every miracle you ever read of or see or experience, it is not unnatural. It is not God subverting the rules of the world. It is, a, it is supernatural in the exact sense of the world. It is supernatural. It is extra natural. That again, God did not create a world of blindness or sickness or a world with lepers or anxiety or depression or cancer or cyclones or tsunamis or even death itself. And so what every miracle does is it points to the way the world should be and the way the world will be again. That Revelation 21 says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will deal with them and they will be his people and God will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Church, that is what we are looking forward to. That is what every miracle points to to the day when every tear will be wiped away, when every wrong will be made right, when every pain will be removed and every evil thing will be undone. Church, that is our hope and that is our future. And so look, right now in this life, if you are going through some real suffering, if you are sitting in pain and anxiety and life is just hard or you're going through illness or heartache or whatever it is, whatever the diagnosis is, whatever the prognosis is, whatever you are dealing with, God has already paid the price for that brokenness. He has already made a way for that thing to be made whole and renewed in that particular situation. And ultimately, each and every one of us as believers, we will stand before God 
And we will stand before God in our renewed bodies, freed from all the pain of this world. And yes, that is something we can look forward to, but it is also something we can experience here on this earth. That Psalm 27 says, I will remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That yes, we will ultimately be restored. Yes, one day God is coming back and is going to make everything right. But it is also a promise that we can experience that here in this life. That God can reach out into our situation, into our pain, into our brokenness, and he can make that thing whole. And so look, we're going to finish tonight by, by creating a space where we're just going to let God do that. We're going to come to, with just hearts that are open to whatever God wants to do and whatever he wants to say and however he wants to move. And we're just going to pray that God would come and do amazing things. And so, so the band can come up as we start to finish this off. But, but in the Bible, what we're told in James chapter 5 is, if anyone is, among, is, is anyone among you suffering, then let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful, then let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick, then let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so church, that's what we're going to do. We're going to finish tonight by just doing what the book says. And so look, if you're in a good place tonight, if you, uh, if you are cheerful, then you respond by singing praises. And we're going to worship and the band's going to play. And, and what I need you to do tonight, if that is you, is you sing extra loud. You sing with all the faith you have. You sing like you actually believe the words that are on screen because there are people in this room that are, now that are hurting, that are sick, and they may not have the faith and they need to see that other people around them have faith for God to move. But if you are in trouble, if you are sick, and the word there for sick, it doesn't just mean physically unwell. It literally means without strength. So if tonight you're like the paralytic, and you're just sitting in that mat and, and you're unable to, to enact any change on, on your own, by your own strength, and, then what I need you to do is come forward tonight. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna pray for you. We're gonna have the elders and the pastors and, and the prayer team come around you and we're gonna anoint you with oil and, and we're gonna pray for you. And look, for sure, for sure, that means physical healing. That if you are here tonight and you've got this diagnosis hanging over your head like a weight, then just come forward and receive prayer. And maybe like Dorcas, you can receive a miraculous touch. And in an instant, your, your, your circumstances can be changed, your diagnosis can be changed, that you can leave this space tonight different to how you came in. Or look, maybe, maybe it just means like the start of a healing journey that's God's got you on. Yeah, that God's got you on. Because God can do that. He can heal in a moment or he can heal over a long period of time, but we want to pray over you to start whatever that's going to look like. Well, look, maybe you're here tonight and it's a miracle in your mental health that you're after. That you are battling with things like anxiety or depression 
or suicidal thoughts. And look, if that is you tonight, can I just say, do not walk down that path. Please, 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 you are too valuable. You are too precious. You are fearfully and wonderfully made and God loves you and you are far too loved to walk down that path. And, and, and look, God has a plan for you. He has a future for you. He knows where, where He is taking you. And, and what you need to know is if that is you tonight, yeah, for sure there's chemical and, and there's, there's, there's uh, physical health reasons for that, but there is also a spiritual side to that. That the enemy would like nothing more than to whisper in your ear that you are broken and you are worthless and you are nothing. And so if that is you, we want to come and we want to pray and we want to break that off right whatever it is you feel like you need to experience a miracle and we just want to invite you to come into this space so we can pray and anoint you. If you've got a broken relationship and you want healing, if you have a prodigal son that, that you want them to have a miraculous moment where God just steps into their life, you come forward. If you have financial worries or feelings of loneliness, if you just feel like God is distant tonight and you need a miraculous touch from heaven, then you come forward. So look, I'm going to pray in a moment and, and then we're going to finish and just come forward. Don't wait. Don't stay in your seats. Do not waste this moment. But before I do, we do have a couple um, words of knowledge that the prayer team have been praying into this week. And so uh, if these specific ones are for you, please, please, please come forward. Firstly, a shortness of breath. So if you're, if you're struggling with, with, with ability to breathe and then God has healing for you tonight. Uh, if you're struggling with nerve pain that's coming from your back, then, then God has healing for you tonight. If you have feelings of oppression, like there's just this weight sitting over you and you don't know what to deal with it. God wants to take that off you. And then the final word of knowledge is, is that there's just a sense of, of apathy to the things of God. You're doing all the Christian stuff, you're coming to church, you're, you're praying, you're reading the Bible, there's no joy in it. And God wants you to experience joy in those things again. Look, in a second, I'm gonna pray and if any of those things are for you, if you just wanna come down and receive prayer, we're gonna do that at the front chair. Jesus, I, Lord, I, I just thank you that you are a God who heals, that you are a God who hates the broken things of this world, that you are a God who, who is making all things new, Lord. And Lord, we, tonight we, we just pray that there just be an unleashing of that in this space, that the floodgates of heaven would, would open up and, and, and just your healing would just fall down upon us in a fresh way. Lord, that people would, that we would leave this room different to how we came into it, Lord, because we experienced your touch, we experienced your spirit, and we experienced your healing hand. So Lord, come and do what only you can do in this space. In your name we pray, amen.